Welcome to the Customer First Podcast, hosted today by me, Avashi Rowe. I'm part of KPMG's Global Customer Center of Excellence, which works alongside the network of KPMG firms to help clients deliver profitable growth by putting their customers at the heart of their business. Today, we're going to be talking about customer obsession. This is the theme of KPMG's latest report. It talks about winning the battle for an ever-evolving customer about using insights effectively, crucially, and how all layers of an organization need to be obsessed with the customer. I'm delighted to be joined today by Julio Hernandez, who's KPMG's global lead for the Customer Center of Excellence, David Conway, who's one of the authors of the latest report, and Edgar Molnars, who's our customer lead for KPMG in the Netherlands. Welcome to you all. Edgar, I'll come to you first. You've worked with many brands in your career. Looking first at some of the themes that David's outlined in the report, purpose seems to be growing as a focus for organisations. Tell me about your view. There's definitely a growing focus, uh, I think, throughout all countries, all markets, all categories. Uh, Makes sense. Um, Consumers tend to choose for brands because of purpose and and the role the brands play in their lives and and in society as a whole. Um, so the, um, there's, there's, a, there's logic behind the uh, increase in attention for it. David, what, what, would you add anything to this? Well, I think purpose has become central to organizations' um, efforts to create great experiences for their customers. And, um, and one of the things about purpose is that historically, the sort of things that purpose addresses were the preserve of the CSR department. It was a department that you know, got people to do good works in the community. And actually they've moved that now more central because actually it's the purpose of the organisation and how it's discharged through the experience that both inspires employees and connects with customers. And so we see that, um, if you look at the report, we have 20 companies that have done exceptionally well. They're in our Hall of Fame. And all of those companies have a very strong sense of purpose. So, as Edgar says, for some of those organisations, they're very focused on a particular customer group. On others, it's a social or environmental um, view they have. But I think the new consumer, the consumers that are emerging in the biggest force, so millennials and uh, Generation Z, are looking for organisations that do more for the world than just make money for shareholders and uh, organisations that are able to demonstrably show that they do that and bring that alive through their experiences are those that we see doing exceptionally well in our surveys across the world. I'd like to, if I may, actually just pick out two companies who I think epitomise how um, purpose plays out through their experiences. So the first is Lush, that does particularly well in the UK, it also does well in the US and on the continent. Um, It's an organisation that has a very strong sense of social purpose and social justice. Now, what it stands for isn't always to everyone's taste. But as an organisation, you know exactly what you're dealing with, and the employees are inspired by the purpose of Lush. And customers are, as Julio says, attracted to it, because actually that purpose defines the values of the organisation. And the customers that deal with that organisation share that business's values. And as a consequence, there's a stronger sense of rapport and participation amongst those customers. Um, The second is Singapore Airlines, which came first in three of the countries that we conducted the research. You know, they described their purpose as enhancing the lives of everyone we touch. And that plays out through the way in which they talk to their employees internally, but also how they deal with 
their customers in both sort of difficult situations when there's you know, issues and disruption, but also when they're actually dealing with the nice parts of life um, in the cabin. So it's a fantastic thing for guiding behaviour in an organisation for both of those businesses. Edgar, you've talked about examples before, um, uh, a new chocolate brand that, that came out. Tony's. Yes, yeah. exactly. Can you tell us a little bit more about that one? Well, the interesting story behind Tony's is that the, the purpose itself is um, uh, the actual starting point of the brand as a whole. Um, it was founded by a journalist um, who uh, he made a program in the Netherlands. He's attacking huge uh, uh, food brands because of bad behavior that they express. Um, and he was worried about the uh, slavery which still exists in, in, in the chocolate category. And that was the starting point of Tony Chocoloni. He's, he's called Teun van der Keuken, uh, which, which doesn't sound that well in, on, uh, on an international level. So he, he changed his name to Tony's, Tony Chocoloni. And his, and his simple objective or purpose is, is to, uh, to, produce, to make uh, chocolate or the chocolate category slavery free. Um, and in addition to that, he has a fantastic uh, story behind it, which is a genuine story, but, but also to your earlier point about the taste of the chocolate, he's got some interesting flavors uh, as well. So it's not just the purpose, uh, but also the chocolate itself um, and, and, uh, and the marketing behind it. But it's a real purpose, it's his purpose. And he lives the purpose. He, he, well, he actually um, succeeded in, in making sure, to David's point, that the purpose itself lives throughout the organization. So everyone within Tony's um, started at Tony's because of the purpose. That's really interesting, actually, because that's a startup with an employee base of one. Um, you kind of talked about kind of bringing it through the organization, using employees to kind of live and breathe that purpose. How do you do that if you're an established organization? So it's really hard, I think, to get people to think in a different way. So the way that we see organisations um, coming to terms with this is actually doing a deep dive into what they think they stand for as a business. What was it that originally caused them to be created? Um, once organisations start to do that, then it's the mission of the executive team to put their people in touch with that purpose. And indeed, an organization that does really well in our survey, which is USAA, the former CEO described that the, the role of the CEO expressly as being to put people in the organization in touch with the purpose of the organization. Um, so it is possible. We've seen organizations do it. But you have to find out what was that original starting point? What was the, the point of ignition that created this business? David, in the report, you discuss how companies need to take a look at the product services and propositions that they have in the marketplace in view of the fact that as customers, we're changing um, and how critical that speed to market piece has become. Can you talk about that a little bit more and how organisations are adapting? Sure. So what we're seeing is that time is becoming a competitive weapon. And uh, we have organisations in the UK like Ocado that do well in the UK survey, like um, AO. We also have Zolando, which is an organisation from um, Germany, but Netherlands, and now spreading across Europe. Uh, and clearly we have you know, Amazon in the US. Now these are organisations for whom time is critically important. Um, Zara is another organisation that, you know, fast fashion, bringing clothes to market, catwalk to store in two weeks, is what they aim to do. Now you have to design the supply chain 
that is capable of sustaining that speed. Um, you also need to then harness an ecosystem of suppliers that ensure that they're able to deliver into that supply chain in the way in which it meets your, your time to market you know, aspirations. So time, speed, personalization, and convenience are the things I think that are differentiating the way that organizations are moving to. And we're moving to a world of organizations that are platform specific. These are organizations that are actually carving out a niche in a particular range of a purchaser's purchasing spectrum and are dominating that and are bringing those products to market really quickly in a very personalized way. Um, and that for us really is the secret of success in future. It's been able to connect all the different components of your supply chain in a way in which they all work collectively together so that the whole is greater than some of the parts. I wanted to just ch touch on the uh, alliances and, and, and partners point that you made earlier. Julio, you, you work with a lot of clients who have some of these challenges. Um, what do we say to clients to kind of help them understand how to go about doing this? As a company, I make a promise to the consumer, I make a promise to the customer. I want to deliver an experience that's relevant to them. So I have to spend a lot of time picking the right partners to do business with, being really clear around the operational level agreements, the service level agreements, making sure everyone's clear on their role of actually delivering the customer experience. So essentially, I orchestrate the customer experience, but not just within my four walls, but outside my organization. So that means I have to select the right partners, I have to communicate with them, I have to give them the right experience as well, and I have to make sure it works. Otherwise, at the end of the day, I, I drop the eggs, I break, a, I break them, and it's not good. The customer experience isn't excellent, and the consumer says, oh, I don't like that company, not because of the partner, but because of the whole chain. Yeah. Edgar, what would you add to that from a branding perspective? So speed itself uh, has become uh, incredibly important in all sectors. Um, the question is, is it because consumers expect speed, or is it because of um, and the lack of differentiation on other levels? Uh, but the fact that, that the differences between brands aren't that big anymore and the alternatives are huge and it's just one fingertip away, yeah, then it becomes really important. And the same applies to, to mistakes that have been made within the supply chain. It's, it's, it's the same reason and you easily uh, switch to another. I think the speed is, you know, there's a couple of dimensions to it though. One is being responsive, right? So if you think about Zara and others, they're being responsive to the market and what the customer wants, so they need to be able to act quickly. Um, there's also the dimension of just agility. How fast can I actually pivot, right? So you could be doing it really fast, but if it's the same thing wrote over and over and over, you're not necessarily being responsive. So there's different elements to it. And I think the point Edgar makes is absolutely correct, which is it's not uh, for the sake of speed, it's for the sake of responding to some stimuli that you want to take advantage of. And you absolutely are competing against a competitive set, so you need to be better than the competition and understand that. But you don't have to be 10 light years ahead of them. You just have to be faster than they are across the finish line. Now, data plays a huge part in that, doesn't it, David, in terms of the type of data that organizations are now able to harness. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, yeah, as you say, data is critical. Um, <clears throat> So in the UK, Marks & Spencer's well-known retailer, um, brought in a new chief executive. Um, his very first task was to appoint over a thousand analysts to look at all dimensions of the business and to analyse exactly how that business operated and what could be done to make it move faster, smarter, 
um, and improve the overall cost and return quality of the, of the organisation. So data itself is now surfacing as being sort of very critical in the way that you manage your business. But also very important is predictive capability. So we're seeing organisations more and more now investing in trying to understand when their customers are likely to move into a purchase cycle um, or indeed require information or knowledge. So predictive analytics that allows you to understand when a customer is most receptive to your messaging or indeed is most requiring of your assistance and help is becoming another differentiating factor. Um, so again, in you know, the USAA example um, is interesting here. They reckon that up to about two years ago, if a customer went into a life event, then they would find out about it some stage afterwards. So life events drive our need for financial services. USAA is a bank. Now, with about 80 to 90% accuracy, they believe they can predict when a customer is about to go into a life event, which means that they can then break through all the noise, they are very relevant to the customer at that particular point in time, and they have choices about the way in which they engage with that customer. Do they engage at a product level, or do they engage with content that's relevant to the life event, or do they find some form of offer or something that is particularly appealing to that customer at that particular point in time? And so, yes, you know, data and being able to use that in a very customer-centric way is becoming very important to large organizations. I think just building on what David's saying, too, though, there's, as an organization, as a company, I also want to understand data or the signals that are coming into it. But I also need to look that through that through the lens or filter of the decision-making process and the frequency of the decision-making process and the timing of the decision-making process. Because if I'm going to decide I want to make a new model car, that's not a decision I make every day. I make that every year, every five years, and I, and I need input that helps me make that decision. If I'm doing personalization engine with a rules engine behind it and I'm running algorithms to be predictive, then I'm running that on a continuous basis. So I need to take these signals and, and, and interpret them based on how I'm going to take an action. If it's a, if it's a, it's a continuous action, then it's going to be all the time. If it's intermittent, it should be pasted intermittent. If it's a long-term strategic decision, the, the, the inputs are going to be very different. And getting that synchronization is really critically important. Why get data and signals uh, reviewing them all the time if you're not going to act on them? So think about the decision-making process. There's also a lot of sensitivity around data and how it's being collected, how it's being used. Um, and sometimes it feels a little bit about you know the digital equivalent of the Wild West. Um, Edgar, how do you see the future relationship between the brand and data and consumers? Because that needs to kind of really be in sync to achieve all of these areas that you're talking about. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult subject, um, <clears throat> not only because of legislation, but, but uh, I think it's, it's difficult because of uh, something we don't know yet, which is the acceptance of consumers towards uh, this, this, this incredible use of data. Uh, they know it. They're to a certain extent aware of it, but we no, don't know when the kind of tipping point will come. And I think it will come. At a certain point, people say, okay, so enough is enough. Uh, for a certain amount of convenience, I'm, I'm prepared to give up my privacy or give up uh, uh, or to exchange data. Um, but it's, it, it's not something we can predict. You know, I think building on what Edgar says, I think there's a couple of points here that are worth noting. One is you're going to have some guardrails that are going to come because of regulations. These are guardrails, right? So GDPR in, 
Europe has really made a big impact. You're seeing uh, legislation in the United States on the West Coast. You're starting to see, um, you know, a lot of press from, from the regulators. So those are guardrails, but they're not just the only rules. The second thing we talk about and we've written about publicly is around what we call permissions and presumptions, right? You're going to, you're, you're going to give me, as a consumer, permission to use this data. I'm going to be very explicit about it. But then there's the presumption about how you're going to use the data. So if the presumption is you're going to tailor an ad for me, you're going to give me relevant information, you're going to curate uh, articles for me, et cetera, et cetera, that's fantastic. Where companies are getting a little bit more friction is really when their business model monetizes the data in a way that's completely different than what the services they're providing, i.e., you know, I go on to a social media platform to let people and share pictures and stories, and yet I'm monetizing it by selling advertising, then that becomes a little bit disjointed, and companies have to think through that. The last point that I think is really critical to think about, and our, our customer research um, bears this out, is each generation is looking about sharing data in a very different way, right? So when you look at baby boomers, they tend to hold it a little bit closer to their chest. As you think about the millennials, they're more willing to share um, and we're not really sure what's going to happen with Z yet. But the point is they all think about it differently, and there is a kind of continuum of the acceptability of it and how they respond to it. So I think you have to stay attuned to that as well. Um, so this idea of just basically looking at the guardrails, understanding what your business model is, and being really clear about how you're monetizing the data, I think are really good ways to navigate uh, this interesting time. David, you're nodding away there. What do you have to add? Yeah, no, I think there's a... <clears throat> A really interesting relationship between trust and personalization that you know Julio is bringing to bear there, which is um, the level of trust that I have for an organization governs how much information I'm prepared to give it, personal information, and, um, and if the organization uses that wisely and to my benefit, then I will give more of it. And if I, you know, in return get more things to my benefit, I'll give even more of it. And so there's a there's almost a virtuous circle that's at play there, that the more that um, the organisation uses my information wisely, the more I trust it, the more information I give. However, you have one opportunity to completely destroy that. You know, we have a phrase that says that, you know, trust is earned in drops and uh, lost in buckets. And, um, and that's what we're seeing with major organisations that have a, you know, a fundamental data breach, is that systematically undermines all the goodwill they built over time. And I'm now in a vicious cycle, which is dragging me down. I'm going to give less and less and less if I think the organisation isn't able to use when I give it wisely. Um, and I think consumers are becoming much more nervous about giving information away, much more considered about the information they're prepared to give. Um, and, uh, and are looking for reassurance throughout the experience that that information is going to be used wisely and effectively and to their advantage as opposed to, you know, Julio's point, their disadvantage. But there's a paradox here, right, which is you as a company can come to me and say, Julio, how do you want to be treated? Julio, what are the things that are of interest? And that is basically, many companies would call that primary research, or I give you my preferences. The challenge is as a consumer, what I say I want isn't necessarily what I do. So you want to spend a lot of time also understanding my behavior, right? And to understand my behavior, you could look at the transaction sets I have, and that's relatively benign if people are going to be okay with that. It's what happens is when you then take those transaction sets and you start buying data from other people and aggregating data from other people and starting to put it together. And I think really what brings it, I think David's point about trust is spot on, but there's this other element of what we call creepy versus cool. 
right? And, and, and the best example or a great example, and it's well known, at least in North America, was a retailer in North America basically studied buying habits and were able to look by basically the baskets that you were buying at a store, they could determine your probability of being pregnant. And then they tailored ads to those households to basically push them to um, come into the store because they knew if a customer came in before and after they had the baby, they were going to spend a lot more money in the store. Well, that's fascinating, right? But then they communicated it out and they got caught and they had to basically walk it back and, uh, and just do a little bit more difference, right? So that's kind of cool, but it's creepy, right? And, you know, I think companies have to strike the right balance. And the last point there on that one is, you know, I hear often just when as I travel around the world talking to clients and talking to consumers, they'll go, you know, it's really interesting. I was on my phone the other day. I mentioned something. And now on my social feeds, I'm getting advertising for the thing I mentioned. And I didn't even search, yeah. right? So the question of the intersection of voice to, the, to actual the behavior is interesting. So I think consumers are they're aware and they're wanting companies to navigate this creepy versus cool in the right way. I think the creepy versus cool plays out depending on the situation as well. So, for example, Julia, I was in your hometown of Atlanta last week checking into a new hotel right opposite our, our office. And my experience was fantastic. I checked in at three o'clock in the afternoon. And this hotel was one of these kind of, you know, more modern establishments where the check-in was also the bar. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was great because there was nobody around. I checked in. I had a wonderful experience. They acknowledged who I was. They gave me a cup of tea because it was the time of the day. I'm British. They know I like tea. Um, whereas a colleague who I spoke to about this uh, uh, later on checked in around 7 p.m., 7.30 p.m., she was behind a queue of about three or four people. It was noisy. It was bustly. She just wanted to check in and get to her room. But she had to kind of navigate the check-in versus bar experience. So actually, in that sense, this organization hadn't really thought through how they were going to use her data to personalize her experience and welcome her into their establishment. In that specific example, on, on this specific day, it could have been like that. Would it be the same the next day? You know, no, we're, we're people, right? We, we, we act upon our emotions. And you could be completely fine with the same example the next day. And, and, and this, this, this interesting um, kind of contradiction has been here uh, at, at the early days of direct marketing as well. We, of course, data is there and behavioral data is, is a fact. You cannot deny it. Um, but the psychological principles that cost uh, the behavior aren't known yet, which depend on moment. We, we were discussing that just previously, right? Uh, um, uh, on the one day you could, could easily uh, order a red wine, and the next day it's a white wine or, or, or a martini. Uh, it's difficult. And, and um, it's interesting to see what will happen if this example uh, can be solved by predictive modeling or, or better data analysis. I don't know. Are we able to kind of predict behavior based upon uh, psychological principles or not? Talking about creepy, by the way. That, right. <laughs> that is really creepy. But, but at the end of the day, even in that story, it, you, could, you, can, you can just walk it back and say that was an experiential issue, right? And if you think about our six pillars and you think about how we think about time and effort, right, that person didn't want to go through time and effort to check into a hotel with somebody who was trying to do something cool, Right, because all they wanted to do was be done with the task. 
right? And so I think there's probably, even if they don't know who I am, they can clearly look and see there's a cue. They can clearly see that we're getting agitated and they probably need to change their staffing model to be able to do that or allow someone to use a digital method to check into the hotel and go directly to their room. So there are probably things there that aren't necessarily analytics driven. And at the end of the day, I mean, what we're really talking about here is the intersection of insights, crafting experiences, and then delivering those experiences in an informed way that are data driven. And those things all have to work together. There's a bit of science, there's a bit of art, and together when you do it right, it creates magic. I want to touch on uh, the six pillars that you mentioned there, um, Julio, and come to you, David, to just give an overview of those. Sure. So <clears throat> we've been researching this area for 10 years now, and uh, from the very outset, we identified that organizations that seem to create great experiences for their customers excelled at six factors. And, um, and every year since, we've looked at those factors and we've decided, are they... Um, you know, comprehensive enough to describe what goes into an experience. And, uh, and every year we come back with the same answer that says, yes, they are. We also look at the um, link between those pillars and economic outcomes. And we look at the impact they have on things like net promoter score and uh, customer satisfaction. And we know that they explain around 70% of those scores. So they're highly indicative of um, the commercial outcomes if you get them right. Now, those six factors are firstly personalization, so the greater which, degree to which you're able to make the experience feel unique to the individual. Um, also today, it's a little bit more than that. So the psychology of personalization is as much about my sense of self-worth as it is about the degree to which something feels unique to me. So after I've had an interaction, do I feel better about myself? Do I feel valued? Do I feel important to that organization? Do I feel more in control? Am I educated? So personalization is a really important part, and we see it as one of the, the pillars that's most significant in driving um, NPS scores. The second is resolution, fixing things when they go wrong. So, you know, every organization knows no matter how good they are at making things happen, there are the, the law of unintended consequences says there's things that are going to happen that we can't outlook. But actually how you put the customer back in control, put them back in the position they should have been in, and making sure they feel good about that experience leads us in something called the service recovery paradox, which is something goes wrong, we fix it brilliantly, the customer feels better about us as an organization. Next one is integrity. So we've talked to, you know, earlier about purpose and making money um, is not just the, uh, the prime objective of an organization, it has a wider range that it needs to think about now, but also do you act in your customer's best interest? So Julio talked earlier about the kind of creepy and cool thing. Are you actually treading that line in the right way? Um, are you competent at what you do, and do you keep your promises? And if you get those things right, then you build trust with the customer. Um, the next one for us is valuing time and effort. And, um, and we've talked earlier about, you know, time has been a competitive weapon. Um, but also, you know, there's something in psychology called the fluency effect, which is the easier something is, the more likely we are to remain loyal to that organisation. Because um, we tend to be sort of lazy intellectually, and therefore, you know, the easier we make things, the more loyal people become, um, you know, curiously. The other part of um, sort of valuing time and effort is how you make people feel about the expansion, how they expend that effort. Um, so, you know, so people can feel good about something that's difficult. Um, equally, they can feel good about something that's quick. So, you know, how you feel about an experience and the time that's expended is relative to the experience that's created around it. Think of Disney World. You know, by the time you've queued to get into a ride at Disney World, you've been, you don't care, you do all those things. So, so, yeah, so there's, a, there's, a, there's a way of thinking about, you know, time and effort that's important. 
Next one is expectations. So, you know, being able to set expectations accurately and, you know, if possible, exceed those expectations. But at a very minimum level, you've got to achieve the expectations that you set and reset those expectations. And then finally, empathy. And empathy simply is about showing that you care, that the customer is important to you. And you do that by, you know, using sort of emotionally intelligent responses to the customer. So if the customer interacts with you and they want to, you know, you to act with urgency, you act with urgency. If they want reassurance, you give them reassurance. If they want sympathy, you give them sympathy. But being able to detect the emotional requirement that the customer has and be able to satisfy that um, is becoming, again, sort of very important for organisations. So those are the six dimensions. Um, and there's a little bit of a hierarchy associated with them. So, you know, integrity will be at the bottom of that pyramid. Um, it, um, you know, is the basis of all relationships, isn't it? Trust, personal and commercial and otherwise. Um, if you move up, the, the next one is resolution. So fixing things when they go wrong. Um, then you've got the sort of the expectations, time and effort. Um, and actually, the two that make a difference are personalization and empathy. But actually, if you haven't got the previous four right, being excelling at those doesn't make a lot of difference to your business. And it's interesting you say that because in uh, the 2019 research, personalization has come out as a huge theme and is actually, you know, the, the, the main driver for customer loyalty in 14 out of the countries that we had in the report. Why do you think that is? It's a battle for relevance. I want you to be relevant to me. And if you deliver a great experience that's relevant to me, then hopefully it will be memorable. And there are some things there that really are important. And one of the things that's just almost like the aggregation of many of these ideas is it has to be contextual. If you empathy, right? If someone's laughing, how you're empathetic is very different than if someone's crying. And you need to be, it needs to be contextualized. You also need to be contextualized in terms of my preferences. So I'm going to have that data. You're going to want contextualization around what I've done historically. So all that information comes together, but it's, it works when it's relevant and it's memorable. And it's really the memorable experiences on the plus side and on the negative side that really influence um, how you view a brand and how you view their delivery of great customer experiences. I think uh, to add to that, um, I think empathy and sympathy, um, and I don't know whether it's true, David can comment on that, but um, are the most self-esteem building pillars. Uh, so it has, a, it has an effect on you. Uh, and, and as a human being, uh, you want that. That's one thing. And the other, the other thing could be that, that um, it is, so, so the increase in importance has also uh, very much to do with the level of expectations that uh, consumers already have. So if the one brand is delivering upon a certain level of, of empathy and personalization, it's the minimum that you would expect from the next brand, and, and it becomes kind of a rat race. Uh, so you need to be very good at those, those two, in addition to, to the, the, the lower levels that need to be there, because otherwise you won't get there at all. Um, but it's, uh, to me, at least, on the, uh, the six pillars are the, the, the ones that are on top, the most human ones, and, and the others are a little bit more rational. So just to bring those sort of two points together from Julio and Edgar there, which is um, the psychology of it is that as human beings, we remember things which are personally meaningful to us. So our brain has evolved over time to keep us safe. And so things that are emotionally connective to us, the brain sort of puts a yellow sticky on it and says, remember this because it's important. 
and therefore things that are emotional, we will store those. So if somebody does something special for us, we'll remember it. If somebody goes the extra mile, we'll remember it. Um, but also we remember things that are novel and unexpected. So you know, if the expectations are exceeded, then we'll also remember that too. So memorability about experience guides our future behavior. And, um, and we will either patronize that organization in future. Um, based on positive memories. Now, one of the interesting things is that a negative memory, strongly negative memory, requires 11 positive memories to overwrite it, according to the psychologists. So you've got to do an awful lot of hard work to win that customer back, actually, if you've you know, caused them problems earlier on in that relationship. But that just echoes this whole idea of the customer really being the center, right, of customer centricity, of customer obsession, because likewise, with that heavy lift to improve the experience or the overall math, if you've delivered a bad customer experience, the same people will pick up the phone or social media and tell many people that the experience was bad. So it's really important, right, for our clients to understand this idea of customer experience design, but more importantly, management, and the proactive delivery of great customer experiences that are aligned with the expectations you set are critically important. And it doesn't happen in a vacuum. We do the CE study basically to have others around the world understand what leaders are doing, to understand what are some of the best attributes, some of the best tactics and actions, because at the end of the day, customer experience transcends any one industry and goes to the totality of what we experience day in and day in as consumers across multiple sectors, multiple industries, multiple geographies. And so I think it's really critically important. And that's why this is such an interesting topic for us and why we spend so much time studying it out in the marketplace and sharing this study with the, the, the broader population. And I think that there are three elements here, and then I just want to make a, a final point, which is, one is you have to understand the consumer that you're going after in the market that you're trying to win in. Number two is with that information, then you can start to design the experience that you think your company needs to be able to deliver. And you need to strike that balance. You've seen my ex, right, yeah. in terms of understanding the economics of it. And then number three is you've got to align the organization to be able to deliver it in the most efficient way. Thank you so much for taking part in our first podcast. Thank you to all of the guests on today's episode. Join us next time as we continue our discussions on being customer first. Thanks for listening. Until the next time, goodbye.